Welcome back to the third in our three-part series called The Spirit of Christmas Past. As this lesson is being taught, our world is in the middle of a global pandemic. And the suffering from the coronavirus itself is not inconsequential. But the difficulties and the trials and the suffering related to reactions to it, the isolation, the loneliness, the uh, feeling of being estranged, the grief of not being able to visit loved ones. And in other words, it's a, a very disconcerting and in, in a lot of ways a dark time for our world. Well, as we go into celebrating Christmas, it posed the question to me, and I thought it was worth putting it in perspective for us, and that is, how can we be content in circumstances that are not to our liking? How can we be content when things aren't going our way? And that's certainly an understatement for this time in the world's life and our lives. And yet I think it's worth looking to the scriptures to get some answers to that. So we have been looking at the example of Jesus and very specifically the example in Philippians chapter two, verses one through 11. That is the story of Jesus, who, although he was God, left heaven, came to earth, took on the form of a servant, became obedient to suffer and die, even death on a cross, for our redemption, for the ultimate end of us being redeemed and us going from death to life. And so you see Jesus himself experiencing, and this is the understatement of, of all time, circumstances that weren't to his liking, and yet doing it, doing it joyfully, the scripture says, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, the New Testament tells us. So let's see where we've been. We looked at Philippians 2, verses 6 through 7, and I want to walk us through these, uh, a little review of the points that we have made so far. Jesus, even though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of humanity, in the likeness of literally the weakest of humanity, a baby. And the principle we wanted to pull out of this, and we challenged ourselves, is what are we holding on to? What expectations, what uh, requirements for contentment are we holding on to? We'll say, look, I can be content, I can be joyful, I can have a really great Christmas as long as. Whatever we fill that blank in with is something that we're grasping. I'm not saying they're bad things. It certainly was not a bad thing that Jesus Christ is God, and yet he chose not to hold on to that. And so our first challenge was what are we grasping that is necessary for us or we think is necessary for us to be content? And then the passage goes on and we looked at verse eight. And being found in human form, and this is sort of a, a cosmic, it is what it is. In other words, Jesus becomes human. This is the incarnation. This is the story of Christmas, by the way. This is Emmanuel, literally, God with us. And so being found in the form 
of a human being, in other words, given that this is what is necessary, he humbled himself, how? By becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. We talked about two things here. We talked about holding on, obviously, to things that we think we need to be content. And we looked at Jesus letting go. And we said the key for us is to emulate Jesus and let go of those things. But then the question became, well, how? How do we let go of those things? And we pulled two key ideas out of this. One, we realized that our obedience is oftentimes as human beings subject to whether or not we think it is worthwhile. Meaning whether or not we understand that there's some good that will come of this obedience. And so the first principle was let go by trusting that God makes these circumstances worthwhile. Remember we had a kind of a thought experiment of standing in eternity with God and looking back at the whatever time period of trials, suffering, tribulations, difficulties we might have, and standing there with the confidence saying, I know that when that happens, I'll look back and I'll say, that was worth it, you were right. If I knew what you knew, I would have done exactly the same thing. In other words, we trust that God is good and that he is faithful. And so if we trust that these circumstances are worthwhile, that's a key to obedience. The second thing, in the key to how do we let go of these things is to humble ourselves to circumstances we cannot change. We talked about we can rebel against circumstances we cannot change, or we can humble ourselves. And being found in these circumstances that we cannot alter, we become obedient to them and say, these circumstances will not control my contentment. So trusting, that God will make this worthwhile. And secondly, becoming obedient, humbling ourselves to circumstances that we cannot control. And so in this lesson, I'd like to move on and talk about that third piece. But before we do, what we've been doing in each lesson is to put this a little bit in perspective. In the first lesson, we looked back at Christians celebrating Christmas during the Blitz, 1940, London, bombing every night for eight months. And we didn't do that in the sense that, well, their lives were worse than ours, what are we complaining about? But it's not the point at all. The point is that Christians have always understood these keys to being content even when the circumstances didn't lend themselves to it. And I want us to take encouragement from Christians throughout history and Christians throughout the world. And so in our last lesson, we looked around at uh, North Korea and China and Iran, and we know there are a number of places where it's very difficult to be a Christian, where you can be arrested for celebrating Christmas or for gathering together. And still we saw that Christians could be content and joyful in the midst of circumstances they could not control. Well, in this lesson, I wanna take a little different geographic trend. This is a map, by the way, that I've just put up from the United Nations, and it's showing some of the least developed countries in the world. These are countries that are referred to, whether rightly or wrongly, but kind of as third world countries, simply meaning that these are the least developed countries in the world. And there are gonna be a couple of these countries that I want us to take a look at 
me highlight a couple of things here. Uh, one would be in Bangladesh. You see that down in southeastern Asia. Uh, here's South Sudan in the southern part of Africa, uh, South Africa. In other words, there are a lot of places where Christians are joyful and they live very different lives than we do. And I'm not talking about just lives that have less material abundance, although that is true by definition. These are the least developed countries in the world, meaning they have a, a lower amount of material abundance than we do. And yet, you see Christians in this country not really focused on circumstances they can't control, although we certainly would love for their uh, circumstances to be better, but being found where they are, it's not a matter of I'll celebrate Christmas, I'll be content, I'll be joyful, I'll love God when grasping onto something happens. No, it's a matter of I can be content regardless of my circumstances. So I just put together a few slides to show you a couple of things. One thing I think we in the West, certainly in America, get used to is the way Christianity has taken form in the West for centuries has been centered around buildings. Now that's a good thing in that it gives us a place to gather, it gives us a place to come together, it gives us a central place to serve from. There are many, many good things about this model. And of course, as with anything, there are some drawbacks to this model. If we aren't careful, we come to identify our community in Christ, called the church in the New Testament, with a facility or with a building. And I love these two pictures because it reminds me visually that church is not the building. And church can be anywhere. If you remember in our last lesson, we saw a picture of some women in North Korea and they were singing some hymns and they were just gathered together on some steps. It's sort of like an impromptu gathering. I mean, they were not in a church building or anything and it's illegal to do that there. And so they just came together, I don't know how long, uh, maybe briefly to sing and then disperse before they could be arrested. Church happens in a lot of different places and it looks very different around the world. And I think that's a good perspective for us. Here are some other churches in Africa, by the way. So lest you think that I'm trying to say that every church in Africa looks like that, there's some gorgeous churches in Africa. And the point there is, is that what happens inside a church is not measured by what it looks like on the outside. Now, you and I know that intellectually, but I want to emphasize that. If you have a beautiful building, it really speaks nothing to what happens inside. It may be wonderful things happening inside, or it may not. You may have the simplest of structures, and you may have wonderful worship happening inside, or not. In other words, the building is a convenience for us, and it, it, the architecture, as you can see in this, is very different than America, and yet, Christians worship in all of these different kinds of venues. This is Christmas, by the way, in Sudan. And I thought this was instructive because you see a lot of color, but if you look closely, you don't see many Western traditional images. And that's because the essence of Christmas, the essence of celebration of the incarnation of Christ, God becoming human for the sole purpose of redeeming us, 
really doesn't owe its symbols to any particular culture. And that, that act can be celebrated and symbolized with a lot of different cultural symbols. And so I love this because it's a Christmas celebration and yet it looks so unlike ours. And yet the truth is the same even though the traditions vary. Christmas in Bangladesh. This, by the way, uh, it, you can't tell from these pictures, they're singing Christmas carols. In other words, this is Christmas in Bangladesh, in southeastern part of Asia. And you just see, you look at it and you go, wow, that doesn't look like anything like Christmas to us. And yet you and I are more closely bound to these people because of the central truth that defines our lives, defines our future. We are more closely bound to them than we are to anyone else that we know, any of our neighbors who do not share our trust in an eternal God. And so there's this brotherhood, sisterhood of humanity in the church that transcends culture and buildings and language and ethnicity and Christmas carols and traditions. It transcends all of those things. And so what we talk about in this lesson is true for Christians everywhere through all of time. And there aren't many things in our world that you can say that about. But the truth of the gospel is the same yesterday, now, and tomorrow, and it's true for every person. And so I simply wanna put this in a little bit of perspective. Well, as we move on, the passage that ends this little section in Philippians 2, given that Jesus finding himself as God did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but instead he emptied himself, became, took on the form of a human being, a baby, in fact. And being found in these circumstances, he humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. Circumstances that were very undesirable and circumstances over which he really had control, unlike you and me, and yet he humbled himself to be obedient to those circumstances. And it ends this way, therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is ruler, he is king to the glory of God the Father. By the way, I wanna dig into the idea of exaltation here uh, because you see a movement in this. You see Jesus is with God. You see Jesus moving downward into the weakest of the weak into a human form, a perishable form, a form that dies and then God exalting him. And so you see this movement through this process. And you and I are engaged on the same process as Jesus. But the part I wanted to highlight here is that idea of the exaltation of Jesus that uh, every knee should bow in heaven, heavenly beings, earth, under the earth, demons, rebellious heavenly beings, and every tongue will confess because it will be obvious that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is King 
of the universe. And this picture, this simple little picture, captures that truth to me the way no other does. I love this because it is the simple response of humanity standing in front of the symbol of the incarnation, of God becoming with us and God loving us so much that he would redeem us by giving his own son. And you see that every knee will bow. By the way, uh, I don't know when you pray, if you get down on your knees, you know, maybe as you were taught as a kid, I wasn't, but uh, as you were taught as a kid, you know, you get down on your knees uh, by your bed and you say your prayers and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You can also say your prayers in the car, don't close your eyes. You can say your prayers lying in bed. You can say your prayers sitting at your desk. You can pray constantly, ceaselessly in any circumstances that you find yourself. But I would suggest to you that every now and then, as often as you wish, that you get down on your knees. There's something about the idea of that posture, our physical posture, speaks to a perspective in our mind. And it's just a great physical reminder to me of this passage that every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even the ones who are persecuting you, even the ones who hate God, even the ones who have done horrible things to their fellow man and to Christians in the past, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so this idea of exaltation, so here's where I wanna go with this. I wanna put the last piece together because now you've come full circle from God to man to death on a cross to being exalted. And I wanna talk about being exalted because you and I are the same way. We were sunk in the depths of sin and through the redeeming power of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, the good news that God had sent his son to reconcile us to him, something we could not have done on our own, and so you get this good news and we too then are lifted up out of sin and our home becomes to be as a daughter and son of the King of Kings to live eternally as God's family in heaven. And so we too are exalted. But what I want to observe about this is that the suffering, the difficulties, the trials you can't have the exaltation without the journey that leads to it. There is a very, very well-developed theology in the New Testament, all of the Bible, but I'm gonna focus on the New Testament, of suffering. And it's one that I'm afraid that uh, we have not been very good of reminding each other. You see, our secular world says suffering is bad. You and I agree it's unpleasant but they think it's bad, it should be avoided at all costs, and you should stay in it as little as possible. In other words, the essence of life, and it really is as bankrupt as I'm making it sound, I'm not exaggerating, the essence of life is engaging in as much pleasure for as long as you reasonably can and minimizing your suffering, trials, difficulties, etc., as much as you can. That's not the Christian story. In other words, suffering has no meaning. It is simply something to be avoided in the secular world. But if you look at this passage and you look at this story, you don't have exaltation without the suffering. You do not have the lifting up without the descent. And you're gonna see this pattern and I wanna spend some time and I'm gonna show you a number of passages. I'm not gonna show you by any means all the passages, but I don't know if we realize how much the New Testament 
talks about this idea that suffering is not a peripheral bad thing. Suffering, as unpleasant as it is, is essential to this journey. There's a reason that Ephesians 2, 1 through 11, has the form that it did. It doesn't go straight from Jesus was in heaven and God exalted him. No, there is the descent, there is the struggle, and there is the exaltation. So I'm gonna start showing you some passages that talk about this exact idea. And I'll tell you why when we get through. Well, let's start with Jesus. This is in Luke chapter nine. Jesus says, now it happened as he was praying alone, his disciples uh, were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Others say Elijah, come back. And others that one of the prophets of old time has arisen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ of God, the Messiah of God, the anointed one of God, the one that was promised to come and deliver us. All those are what the word Messiah in Hebrew and Christ in Greek, that's what that word means. He said, that's who you are. And so Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying this, and this is the part. I want you to see that Jesus is teaching exactly what we just talked about. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He does not say, and this is very specific in the Greek, he doesn't say the Son of Man unfortunately is going to suffer. That's not what he says. The Son of Man is unfortunately gonna fall into some bad circumstances. No, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, this has implications for you and me, and Jesus is gonna make those implications. He's saying, this is what is necessary for me to do, and this is worthwhile. You too will participate with me, and there are necessary difficulties in your life as well. I don't know if you thought about it this way, but the difficulties in our lives, and I know you might wanna split hairs and we'll save this for another day. Well, I caused most of my difficulties. Hey, welcome to me, 99% of the troubles in my life, I think we're self-inflicted. That's really not the issue. The issue is, is that there are certain things that we must go through. And Jesus says this, listen. And he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What does he mean? What does take up your cross mean? It means participate in my suffering. It doesn't mean be crucified on a cross. It doesn't mean that you are completely righteous and that you will voluntarily give yourself uh, for the good of humanity. It, that's not the point. The point is you will walk a road that includes some suffering and that it is necessary. And he goes on and he says, if you really wanna save your life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, in other words, whoever lays down their life and says, I will become obedient. I will humble myself to the circumstances that you bring. I will walk the path to follow you even if it takes me through circumstances that are not of my desire. That's what he's saying here. 
He says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What does it profit a man if he never suffers and has pleasure his whole life and loses his very soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. The idea here is that suffering is meaningful. It is not desirable. It is not pleasant. We're not denying reality. We're simply stating something that you know is very real and you know is very true. When you look on difficulties through the lens of, of the rearview mirror, if you will, of your life, you very often can see benefit in that. You can see that it was to a purpose. If you can see that some of the time, you need to trust that that is true all of the time. And so this is what Jesus is saying. Let's go on. In Romans chapter 8, verse 12, here's how Paul begins to talk about it. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. In other words, we owe a debt. We have been saved, therefore we have an obligation, but not to our flesh to live however we want. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit and you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let me translate that for just a second. If you pursue pleasure you will die. If you are willing to suffer, you will live. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about an all or nothing, like, oh, you have a life of all of pleasure, no one has that. Or you have a life all of suffering. That's not the Christian life. The point is that when we do encounter difficulties, it is the absolute trust that these are necessary. These are useful. God can make even these difficulties worthwhile. So he goes on, he said, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, meaning we, our inheritance is, is heaven, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided this is interesting, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, does he say that provided we suffer with him, like that's sort of a penalty you pay, or it's sort of something that you have to do to punish you, to make you good? No, he's saying that we walk the same path Jesus walked. You know, we talk about being a Christian as following Christ. I love that way better way of thinking about what we do than saying we are Christians. That's true, but it's more useful to say we follow Christ. And if we follow Christ, Paul says, we will suffer with him and we will be glorified with him. And Paul says this, and he had reason to say it, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. That was Paul's perspective, and I have to tell you, knowing Paul's life, he suffered a hundred times more than I ever have or likely ever will. And yet his point is the same for each of us. When we follow Christ, we also follow him through suffering. In 2 Corinthians, here's another passage with a hint to this idea of suffering. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, our Master, our King, Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies 
And the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. You pause for a section. The idea of the God of comfort, the God who is with us, if life was always gonna be a bed of roses, and it's like, oh, we're gonna follow Christ and everything's gonna go our way. Let's just suppose for a moment that the prosperity gospel preachers are right. You don't really need God with you. You don't really need God's comfort because nothing bad is going to happen to you if you have enough faith. Well, that's obviously not true. It's certainly not biblical. And the idea is, is that if we follow Christ, we also will walk a portion of the road of suffering. And the God of comfort is with us. And so this idea of comfort is very tied to that, the, the solace of the Holy Spirit, the comfort of God. And that's what Paul says, that God comforts us in all our difficulties, trials, afflictions, so that we may be able to be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so also through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort as well. Well, this is kind of taking it to another level. He says, of course, as you understand, as we follow Christ, we'll walk through suffering, but we don't walk through suffering alone. We don't walk through difficulties alone. That our God literally is Emmanuel, God with us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it said, when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God placed his spirit inside you as a down payment, as a guarantee that he will be with you through these trials and through the joys of life, and he will complete the good work that he started inside you. That is incredible comfort. It is the very spirit of God. Romans chapter eight says, when you're in trial and you're in grief and you're praying and you don't even know the words to pray, it says the spirit inside us intercedes for us with groanings that we can't even express. And so along with this idea of suffering comes the idea of comfort. Well, God comforts us and we comfort others. I don't know if you found this to be true, but I have. I have found that you can be of comfort. You can be an agent of God. You can be a servant of God to your fellow uh, Christians by being there during times of trouble. And you don't have to have been through the exact same situation. Now, most of the time when I'm with someone who's grieving, for example, or ill, I can't say, well, I've had that exact same cancer or I've, I've had that exact same loss in my life. Well, that's not always the case, is it? And yet I'm still able to offer comfort, not mine, but God's, because we are fellow sufferers. We have both followed Christ through some very rocky places. And that also equips us to comfort one another. A couple of my favorite quotes from Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa is a, a revered figure. She's very criticized in her time, but no one can argue with the fact that she became poor to minister to the poor. So whatever one's opinion may be, do I agree with all of her theology? I do not. Nevertheless, 
I do agree with this idea of comfort. And her life was devoted quite a bit and inspired by her faith to comfort people. Here are two quotes that are worth thinking about. First is about poverty. She says, to know the problem of poverty intellectually is not to understand it. It is not by reading, taking a walk in the slums, admiring and regretting that we come to understand it and to discover what it has of bad and good. We have to dive into it, live it, share it. And so her point about poverty, and when we talk about poverty, I pay attention to Mother Teresa. She knows a lot more about poverty than, than I ever will. Uh, I'm not saying she's right about everything, but I do think she's right about this, is that until you have some shared experience, it's very difficult to really understand. And I don't mean the same experience. It's popular today to say, well, you don't know what I feel because you haven't been through exactly what I've been through. That's not true. I mean, it's just not true. Uh, in the sense that, have I been through the exact same thing? No. And two people that have been through the exact same thing don't always feel the same. Here's the key point, and this is what she's making, is you can't understand and offer comfort to suffering unless you too have walked that road. Unless you too have experienced the, the need to trust God in the midst of difficult circumstances. And if you've done that, then you can be of comfort to one another. You actually have to dive into life a little bit. You actually have to live it. You actually have to have walked some hard roads. And we all have, and each of us can comfort one another. And then her particular calling was to people who were dying. And I've just always thought this was a beautiful little phrase. In my heart, I carry the last glances of the dying. I do all I can so that they feel loved at that most important moment. Why is it important? When a seemingly useless existence can be redeemed. Now, she's working originally in Calcutta, India, where people literally, literally were throwaway, whose existences were literally useless. Now that's not so true in America, although maybe more true than we would like to think. But my point there is, is that at the end of life, there are people who have lost their way. These are the sheep that Jesus came to find. And in the moment of death, you see a life of rebellion, you see a life of wandering, you see a life of lostness can be redeemed. And that's what we've been sent to do is find the lost sheep and tell them that the master is willing to bring them home. And that's kind of what she did. And there's an essence in which you become uh, compassionate, you become empathetic because I too was once lost. Have I been in your situation? No, but I've been as lost as you have been and I have been found and so can you. Do you see this idea of comfort? I, I won't belabor it anymore, but I really don't want you to think, well, I can't help because I don't know. Yes, you do. You've been through your own difficulties, so go. Comfort your brother and your sister in their time of difficulty. That's part of why we suffer. Now, Philippians chapter one, Paul, remember, is in jail and he is suffering in a variety of ways. I mean, he's suffering some physical deprivation, but he's also suffering very much. Like his enemies have managed to get him in jail so he can quit, he's not preaching anymore. And he's like, this is my life purpose. This is what I was called to do and I can't do it. He's struggling, these are very difficult times. Now listen to what he says though. Let your manner of life be worthy of the good news of Christ 
so that whether I come to see you or I'm stuck here in jail, I can hear of you. What would I hear? That you are standing firm in one spirit, the one truth of the gospel, and one mind striving side by side for the faith, for the trust that you've placed in Christ, not frightened by anything in your opponents. Let me translate that, not frightened, not dismayed, not cowering before the circumstances of our life. He says, because your opponents are trying to discourage you, but this is a clear sign to them that they will be destroyed. But of your salvation, and that comes from God, for it has been granted to you. This is one of the most difficult passages to understand, until especially to understand this idea of the theology of suffering. You have been given the gift, and by the way, this word is the same word as grace. You know, you think of God's grace as his good gifts to you, that's this word. It has been graced to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only get to trust in him, but also get to suffer for him, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and that I now still have. Paul is saying suffering is a privilege and I don't mean privilege because you're earning something like, well, I got my suffering badge and I'll put that over here. And, you know, I got my merit badge for illness and I put that over here. That's not his point. His point is, is that we get to be like Jesus. We get to go through some of the same things Jesus did. That is considered, we've been granted that privilege. In Acts chapter 4, very early on, Acts chapter four is after, right after the resurrection of Christ. So the disciples, of course, are just out preaching and they're saying, good news, God became man. Philippians two, one through 11. God came down, took on the form of a man, died on a cross so that we could be reconciled to God and is raised to live in eternity and we can be with him. This is the best news that ever happened. So they're preaching this. And so the Jewish authorities are like, this is not good. You got thousands of people becoming followers of Jesus Christ. And they're like, this is not gonna work. And so they call in Peter and John because they seem to be the leaders and they threaten them. Then they end up beating them. And this is interesting. And as they leave, it said they left rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the name, the name being the very name of Jesus Christ. I'm suffering because I follow Christ. They thought that was the biggest privilege. That's what Paul's saying here. He said, you get to be like Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always thought, and when I became a Christian, I thought, yes, I understand that God destined me to become like Christ. I want to be like Jesus Christ. I want to follow him. I don't wanna just follow him in the sense of intellectually, uh, have the same philosophy of life. No, I want to be like Christ. And when I said that, I thought, yeah, I wanna be compassionate, I wanna be kind, I wanna be forgiving, I want to be noble, I wanna be true, I wanna be beautiful, I want, I want to be what Christ was. It never occurred to me until I read this passage that part of being like Christ is being allowed to suffer like Christ being allowed to not necessarily go to a cross, but you know what I'm talking about, is being able to experience the difficulties in life and trust God anyway. That's being like Jesus Christ. He goes on, and in Philippians 3, he says, now whatever gain I had, 
And believe me, Paul had a great up and coming life before he had an encounter with Christ totally changed the trajectory of his life. He said, I consider all that stuff loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I consider everything as a loss because of the unbelievable worth of knowing Jesus Christ is my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of everything and I just consider them rubbish to be thrown out in order that I may gain Christ and I might be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, meaning not saying to God, look at me, look at all the things I've done, I'm a righteous person. He says, not that, but that which comes through trust in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, simply trusting and walking behind Christ. Why? So that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. What's he saying? That this idea of suffering is part of becoming like Christ. Romans chapter eight, verse 29, it's part of a pretty little passage. And it says, for uh, God works together in all circumstances for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then it goes on. And this is the part I wanna emphasize. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Your destiny, my destiny, once we surrendered to Jesus Christ was to become like him. And Paul says becoming like him means that you also get to suffer. We participate in everything about Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews, which we read too little, very deep, but a really good point, look at this. This really describes Philippians chapter two. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. What does that mean? He became human. Now humans are not less important than the angels, but they're not heavenly beings, we're earthly beings. These bodies decay. Angels are a different kind of beings. So the point is God himself makes himself a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor, why? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, that's us, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now I'm gonna pause here for a second and say, are you a little surprised and these are nowhere near all the passages that talk about suffering. I mean, this isn't the kind of thing we talk about when we wanna feel better, but this is something we need to talk about or we'll never understand how to deal with contentment in circumstances that aren't going our way. The New Testament has so much to say about this. You not only realize at this point that suffering is useful in refining our faith, that God can make purpose out of suffering. He can make it worthwhile. We've gone way beyond that, haven't we? We've talked about how suffering is necessary, Jesus said. It's necessary for there to be some suffering in your life. And then we went even beyond that to say, we want to be like Christ, which means of course we will suffer. In fact, it is our privilege to suffer. There's more to this theology, there's more to this truth about suffering 
than we usually think. And I really want you to sit in that and steep in that idea. This is a deeply biblical idea that will radically change how we see the circumstances of our life. This is the key to being content when things aren't going our way. First Peter 2, and a couple more. I mean, there's so much about this. Listen to Peter. What credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it? You endure, okay. But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, meaning this is part of what you have been called to do, is this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So when you get into difficult circumstances, you may say, well, I don't know if this is righteous, like Christ or whatever. The point is, you're following in the footsteps of Christ because all of these are an opportunity to learn, to learn, to trust God in the midst of our circumstances. This is God loving us enough to teach us how to be like Christ, how to trust in the midst of these circumstances. Jesus committed no sin, verse 22, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, to God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Suffering is not something God does to us. Suffering is not something random. Suffering is a part of emulating Christ. Okay, one more. 1 Peter 4, and this is the last point I want to make, is do not be surprised when difficulties come into your life. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Now we're talking about the fiery trial of Christians in North Korea being arrested, or Christians in China having their church bulldozed, or Christians in 1940s London having their houses bombed out and their relatives killed, or Christians around the world, some who have much, some who have little. He's talking about all of these. Don't be surprised when all these kinds of trials come upon you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, be joyful, be content insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You see the point? He doesn't say be content because it's good for you. Well, it is, but that's not the point. Be content because tough it out because once you get past that, you got heaven. Well, that's true, but that's not why. He says you need to rejoice. Why do you rejoice? Because you share Christ's suffering. You get to be like Christ, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed because you too will be exalted then. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, don't bring suffering on yourself. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, and what I mean by that is not just you're persecuted because you're a Christian, you suffer because you will do things the way God told you to do them. Let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey? 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then finally, Peter writes to fellow elders in the church, and but this message is for all of us. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. In other words, I saw Christ's suffering as well as a partaker in the glory that is gonna be revealed you should shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain or pride or anything like that, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, listen to this. Think about Jesus. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death and God exalted him. Now this is what's gonna happen to you and me. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he will exalt you casting all your anxieties, worries, fears on him because he loves you. This is a beautiful passage. What he's saying is, is that you suffer like Christ, you'll be lifted up like Christ. And in the midst of this, take your anxieties, your fears, your uncertainties, and we all have them, and literally throw them onto God. This is Philippians 4 that Paul wrote. Uh, verses six and seven, don't be worried about things, but in everything, through your prayers, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God, which is beyond understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Here he says, cast your anxieties on him because he loves you. He wants to know your anxieties. He wants to comfort you in your anxieties. I hope that these passages, I know I've gone through them quickly. I know I've given you a lot of them, although there are many, many more will give you a sense of the depth and the breadth of the Bible's, the way the Bible looks at suffering. The exaltation that came to Christ came because he was perfected in his suffering. You and I are being perfected. And I know that's hard to hear because you think, well, I'm far from perfect. That's true. You're being completed. Your faith is being refined. You are being perfected. You are being molded into the image of Jesus Christ by walking through good times, the fellowship of the saints, immersing yourself in the word, and walking the road of difficulties. All of these things are part of it. And so as we come into a time when we look at circumstances that are not what we want, and the sufferings, while they may not compare to persecution in Iran, they're nevertheless real and we're anxious and we're fearful, we're confused, we're unsettled, if you will. All of those things have a purpose. God makes them worthwhile. And in the highest and truest sense, we literally walk the path that Christ walked and we become more like him. We get to demonstrate our trust of God even in the midst of these circumstances. And that's how Paul can say this. This is the end of Philippians. He said, I'm not speaking to you because I'm in need. Oh, he certainly was, but he didn't think so. He said, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
Now stop and think about it. Is that some unattainable secret? Not at all. If you just think of the passages we just read, I want to follow Christ. Great. Well, you will walk through great joy. You will walk through unbelievable fellowship with your brothers and sisters. You'll deepen your understanding of the word. By the way, there are going to be a lot of really unpleasant things happen in your life. And all of these things mold you into Jesus Christ. And so Paul said, you know, I've learned to look at the, the good things and the not so pleasant things. And I've begun to realize I can be content in any of them because they're all worthwhile, because they're all shaping me like Christ. This is the essence of understanding this. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who strengthens you? the very spirit of God that is with us on this journey of walking behind Jesus Christ. This is how, back to our original question, how can I be content when things aren't going the way I want them to go? This is the answer. This process that we have talked about, you really understand what's happening in your life as this isn't an unfortunate series of events. This is what it looks like to follow Christ. I don't know the circumstances of your life, but I kind of do in this sense. I know that there will be times of peace. I know that there will be times of warmth. I know there'll be times of grief. I know there'll be times of difficulty. I know there'll be times of self-loathing. I know there'll be times of second guessing. I know that there will be all of these times, and I want to assure you that the New Testament tells us in all of these things, we literally are carrying our cross following Christ, and the Spirit comforts us in this process. And so, coming full circle, how do we go into Christmas this year when circumstances are far, far from settled in our lives? And I'll take you back to where we started. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling, how could it be so? It came without ribbons, it came without tags, it came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more? Merry Christmas and God bless you.